Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Hello, Intimates. Welcome to another conversation with Robin Beach. We talk a little bit about her sex education. We distract ourselves talking about squirting. We continue to touch a little bit on Robin's childhood experiences and shame surrounding her now estranged KKK father. We also touch on relationship anarchy versus solo poly and discuss our frustration with the polyamory dilemma presented in movies to monogamous people as an impossible to solve problem, which of course it's not. I hope you are taking care of yourself. If the KKK is a sensitive topic for you or if you've experienced a lot of harm at the hands of white supremacy, please do yourself care. I love you. Take care of yourselves and enjoy the episode. (laughs) Well, I mean, talking, you know, the difference between (laughs) (laughs) sexual orientation and gender identity, I actually do have a workshop that is based on uh, identifying the spectrums and why they're different. Cool. So... That's rad. Um, how many workshops do you currently have oh like, in, in your wheelhouse that you teach? Do you need to look at I your mean, phone? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm constantly coming up with new stuff. And I mean, I have old workshops that I don't, that are available that I don't do very often. Right. Um, Cause I'm just trying to put mine together. So I've gotten to the right. point where I have like two polished talks that I like. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. I have like a million ideas of stuff I could do yeah, and stuff yeah. I could prepare for in like if given like a week. But in terms of like successful workshops I've taught, I've only got like a couple of them that have been really critically acclaimed that I really like. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm finding that, um, especially because I travel a lot and a lot of it now is going back to the same conference and they want different workshops, of course, if I right. go back in another year. And I'm always open to other topics. If I feel that I'm knowledgeable enough to talk about them and someone makes a request, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll be like, yeah, absolutely. So uh, making workshops is kind of a combination of having, like you said, a bunch of ideas of things. Like, oh, I would love to talk about this. And sometimes talking to event organizers some of them ask, like, is there anything that you, like, are really passionate about right now? Or sometimes they'll say, they'll look at their lineup and try to find a gap of topics that they are presenting. So say, okay, well, do you have anything on maybe this kind of topic? So it's kind of all over the place. But I do have a good handful of workshops that are, like, the most popular. Um, I would say my my squirting workshop is probably my most popular mm-hmm. Um because for a couple of reasons, I think I do have a live demo in that one and people are like excited to see it because sure. it's 
like this mystical, yeah. mysterious, magical thing to a lot of uh, folks that aren't exposed to a lot of sex positive culture yeah. um, or sex education. So this, they say, oh, is it actually real? And it's like they have to actually see it for themselves <laughs> to see that it's real. And do you ever have like an experience of feeling marginalized or of feeling like it's a petting zoo situation where people just come in to see the freak as it were. Like, do you ever have that kind of experience where you feel like people are there for the novelty and not for the education? You know what? I'm going to say no, actually. My overall experience has been really good. Um, I do say depending, it tends to be the kind of upper middle class kind of heteronormative folks that um, don't necessarily know how to respond. Right. But, I don't feel like they're just coming to see the freak show as, as it were. Um, if anything, they're really quiet and just kind of taking it all in and trying to process it. Right. Um, but I, mostly I say it's positive when I do have that kind of group that I think might be a little bit more apprehensive mm-hmm. or have possibly any issues. I try to say in the beginning, this is an educational seminar. Right please be respectful. I'm open to any questions you have. And I I just try to make it a safe kind of space for people to be able to ask questions and not feel embarrassed about it. But I try to make sure that this is okay. This is a professional environment. This is educational. This isn't, um, I'm trying to think of the word, but it's, it's not a freak show. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't deviant in any way. This is something a lot of people do. Like I've, I've definitely had partners that have been very comfortable squirting, Mm -hmm regularly and yeah that's a lot of fun yeah um I, it is a mystical magical it thing. is a mystical, <laughs> it's amazing but yeah there's a lot of people that just kind of want to see that it's real um or people that a lot of people that have experienced squirting and maybe have their own issues regarding shame or confusion yeah. and just want to know more um yeah yeah it's actually been overall in in most communities because i teach in in quite a few different communities they're they're all different i can say that that Mm -hmm. like teaching in front of a like a a non-monogamous conference versus like a bdsm conference versus like a women's conference versus all these things it's definitely Mm -hmm. a little bit different in each group so i almost have to like prep myself for that uh yeah, I, and other than that, honestly, it's been really good. Yeah, teaching to my audience for sure. Just in the case of, um, I might tell a a slightly surprising story just to see what kind of reaction I'm going to gauge. And if people are more shocked, I'll say like, okay, to myself, mm-hmm. okay, I have to actually be a little bit gentle yeah. with these people. Maybe not scare them too much. If I'm at like a really heavy like kink <laughs> conference, and they're like, oh, that's so sweet. I'm like, okay, I know uh, I don't have to worry as much about a filter i can go a little bit down the rabbit hole right i want to ask about your books but i think i'll do Mm. that next session i do want to end on talking about what healing from white supremacy has looked like for you and how you've sort of engaged with it and wrestled with it and tackled healing a little more well it's there's a lot of i want to say there's two kind of major avenues that I've had to try to um, address in order to improve myself and heal. And some of that is is the shame aspect. When it comes to working on myself, I'm a huge advocate of counseling and therapy. Um, I know it's not accessible to everyone, but if you can get it, I say go for it. I know there are certain organizations that have sliding scales 
or I know that there are wait lists for some places, which is kind of rough, but if you can get counseling or therapy, I'm a huge fan. Um, and I've been in, in and out of counseling since I was, you know, a young child dealing with trauma and yeah, a lot of it has been addressing the shame of having a background of racist family and having a white supremacist uh, parent and and I still to this day it's hard it's hard to say this but like certain traits like whether it's physical attributes or even mannerisms that mimic my dad I I get really upset over sometimes you know mm -hmm. like oh the smallest mm -hmm. things like that my writing looks a lot like my dad's and it drives me nuts. And so I've like tried since I was like a young teen to like change my writing and adjust Ugh. my writing, like things like that. That sucks. Um, or, and I know that my mom didn't mean this in a negative way and I don't hold it against her, but growing up there were a lot of comments like, Oh, you're just like your father when I would do something that was a lot like him. Cause I do have some of his personality traits. Um, and even seeing that passed on in my genes, just, ugh, I, it's hard to deal with because I'm like, I can't escape my body. I can't escape my genes and my blood. And so there's a lot of shame around that that I've tried to uh, work on in terms of my own health, my own mental health and wellness. So addressing that, things like talking about it, it's been, like I said, this is the first time I've spoken openly about my background and even in therapy, I've, you know, discussed this in many sessions of being in the place of I'm so ashamed. I worry that people will think differently of me mm -hmm. because I think differently of me sometimes. You know, I feel ashamed that I come from this background. I worry that I'm going to be, you know, <laughs> exhibit some of those behaviors. And what if other people think differently of me? Um, so struggling with that, but also knowing, especially as a white person, that it's important to speak up and Definitely. talk about it. And that was actually a really big process in terms of disassociating myself from my father was that realizing that there was so much complacency in the family and being like, you know what? It's not okay. I, I can't just keep visiting him for a lunch now and then it's still being complacent. I have to speak up and say, I'm not shaming you, but I need to hold you accountable for your actions. Yeah. And this behavior is not okay. And I don't want to be any part of it. Um, yeah because complacency is an is an issue amongst racism and so um there's been those personal steps um for me and in in terms of the other kind of avenue i've had to really address and that i've been trying to is of course over the years i've had to unlearn a lot of things and relearn them because like i mentioned my dad had these rants that mm -hmm. I know are total bullshit. And even as a kid, I'd be like, oh, I'm pretty skeptical of them. Still easy to internalize. But it's still easy to internalize. It's still easy to um, have some of those thoughts sometimes and be like, that's so wrong. No, that's your dad talking. That's not you. And so I've honestly been trying to spend a lot of my time um, not just speaking, but like trying to listen, trying really hard to listen to stories. And like, I... It's obviously an uncomfortable topic to talk about, but like, totally. I know I can talk to you about this stuff and I love, yeah. you know, hearing about some of your experiences 
I, it's Sorry, as hard was, as they are. Yeah. But like it's it's educational. Yeah. For me, I want to do better, and so I, I think it's really important, especially as a white person, to do a lot more listening than talking. Sure. So I'm trying to learn, um, trying to learn along with my kid, because of course he's starting to like you know ask questions about different cultures and different religions. So sure. I, I'll say to him, you know what? I don't really know either. Why don't we take a look on take a look? And you know, even just last week we were like, let's go to on YouTube, and we wanted to learn more about turbans. He had questions about turbans, and cool. so I was kind of like, I don't really know much either. Let's Let's go find out. And we did some YouTube and want searching and watch some videos and like that's really awesome. Trying to put uh, myself and my kids in the position of of curiosity and, and learning yeah. instead of you know making any kind of assumptions or even necessarily going up to somebody and asking because I I'm I've learned that that's a lot of emotional labor for people of color. It can be for sure. Yeah. So trying to teach my kids instead of like asking them to be like, well, why don't we teach ourselves mm -hmm. as much as we can at the very least as much as we can. Yeah. So I think that those have been my main ways of kind of trying to heal and improve myself having um, been raised the way I was. Um, yeah, trying to make sure that I, I get past my own internalized shame and issues and then also trying to be uh, better. Was that mine? That was mine. Sorry, oh. I should turn my sound off. No, no, you're good. Um, yeah. Thank you for talking a little bit about healing. I'm curious as yeah. well to talk about um, like sizes of issues because I can't speak for what it might look like today. Mm -hmm. But when I was growing up, there was definitely a problem in Ladner with white supremacy. And it was like mm -hmm. a sizable a sizable issue, I think. But, I mean, I didn't really critically evaluate what was the size compared to, you know, like the size of the city when I was when I was in high school. Realistically, if there's one person that believes that, it seems like too many. Um, so, I, I mean, I definitely noticed one there. But when people in Vancouver tell me, like, oh, but that's not a problem here. Mm. Um, there was like a KKK flyer drop in Langley yeah. like where people got them on their car windshields and it made it into the paper. Like yeah. It was big enough news that it got into the paper. So I'm really interested to hear um, if, you're, if you're willing to just talk about like how extensive you felt it was in the city you grew up in, which you can name if you choose. Um. I won't say where I'll say it was is in Alberta. Sure. Um, and that's actually a really difficult question to answer because to my knowledge, my father was um, actually really quiet. I, I know I said he ranted, was really angry, but it always seemed to be in private. Mm hmm. Um, he, and even when I asked about, like, as an adult, when I saw all the KKK paraphernalia on his living room and I had said, like, do people see this? Mm -hmm. And he said, no, I don't have anyone come to my house. I have one friend that has seen it and like mm -hmm. your grandmother, AKA his mom. Mm -hmm. And so I know that he's a pretty private guy, um, to, to my knowledge I, and, and his connections are, um, through the states he has told me that because i have asked him like where do where do you get this stuff mm -hmm. how did you even acquire this and he had said oh i have connections in the states which i i knew that meant um i, I have no physical proof of this um but my, it was my mom that told me that when i was just before i was born he had registered to be an official member wow. um yeah and so when he said 
oh, I have connections in the States. That's kind of just where I assumed he had gotten them from. Mm -hmm. And I remember him complaining that it was held at the border for a few days. <laughs> He's like, everything gets held at the border for a few days and labeled as hate material. <laughs> and I was like, that's... That's what it is. Yes. And he seemed, he's like, no, no, this is, you know, this is historical, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I was just like, this is hate material. There's yeah. a reason it keeps getting held up at customs. I don't yeah. even know how they let it go. Yeah. How go. did it come through customs? I have no idea. He just said that everything tends to get held up for a few days. And then and eventually. Then he explains it's historical or something. No, they... I think he says eventually they have to release it or something. I don't know. Wow. The... Yeah. So. That's ah, amazing. I can almost guarantee if you order stuff like that on a consistent basis, because he's got a lot of it. You've got to be on a watch he's list He's got to be on some kind of list, I'm yeah. sure. Uh, but I know... Anyways, um, from what I know, he's pretty private. Um, yeah. And I'm sure he's a lot more loud with his connections. And he would have his rants around family sure. or just or just me and my sister. So you didn't notice if there was any like local group that he would no, go to? No, I honestly, okay. I don't. Well, I mean, that's at least positive, I guess. Maybe, I guess. maybe. I mean, <laughs> we shrug, we're like, oh, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. So I can't speak if there are certain groups or anything like that. Um, well, know. Ladner's a lot closer to Vancouver than Alberta is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know it's it was like Langley, kind of yeah. Abbotsford, Chilliwack. Yeah, I've definitely I've definitely heard grumblings about those regions being yeah less comfortable to live in if you're a POC. Yeah, um, which is really shitty with how expensive rent in the city of Vancouver is, mm -hmm. and you know being someone mixed race and thinking like it would be really nice if I could move to like a more affordable location slightly further outside of the city, but like. I pretty much view there as being like Surrey and then it kind of falls off into the general valley area, which I'm kind of wary the of, which is really white unfair. evangelical kind of. Yeah, there tends to be like especially those really Christian roots, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is not necessarily awful, but in some cases it is. It's sort of like that um, the whole not all men, yes, all women mm. discussion around like it doesn't matter if it's not you. It you, they don't people don't know who you are. Mm -hmm. You just are. A dude walking on the street at night and that means you pose a certain percentage chance of yeah. being someone they really should be concerned about yeah and, and, and my case, dry kind of sarcastic mumblings yeah. i should clarify i grew up in abbotsford as a teenager so oh, that's, I see. that's where like my resent uh comes of, from of being of like yeah got you yeah yeah because it was a uh, very yeah very a lot of christian groups yeah, yeah. And I know that uh, when I, a million years ago, when I worked as a stripper, I worked at a place in Chilliwack. It was right. only there for a little bit called The Vault. Okay. And there were, it was in the papers. That's extra funny given what I know about um, human genitals. Oh. Uh, the Vault being <laughs> the, the vault. space inside of a woman's <laughs> vagina that's like on the, um, I guess, the front side, the anterior side yeah. of, um, of the cervix. Yeah, yeah. There's that little vault the where vault, you can access yeah. like the uterus through the surface. That's of the pretty vagina. funny. I didn't think of it that way. I so, think it was called the vault because it used to be like a bank a million years ago or something. <laughs> but that's funny. No. Sure. Uh, anyways, yeah. Um, and there was this huge outrage right. in Chilliwack, and like people were gathering and trying to find ways. They were all kind of pitching in, and the city was pitching in to try to buy out the owner of the club to just to get down. them just to get them out of there because people were complaining about there being a strip club and there were protesters and wow yeah that's intense yeah uh, yep i was like okay you can wait until 
the sun comes down and then you can come to the club and yeah, exactly. <laughs> give you some tips. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they make that joke on The Simpsons. There's the episode where um, there's the strip club called the Maison Derriere, which is like so perfect. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, um, of course, all the public officials have to be against it because yeah. they're public facing. Um, but of course, all of them go to the strip club. Yeah. Um, and when and when criticized for being too liberal um, by his wife, um, Mayor Quimby is like, "Come on, dear, you were I met you here, like you were working here." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of strippers. We used to say that people point with their left hand and jerk off with their right. <laughs> yeah, that is a really that's great. That's accurate. Yeah, um, which I mean is a good opportunity to plug some of my. Uh... I'm not sure which which services you're talking about. Pointing I, no. or Toronto lap dance. No, I don't. I don't strip anymore. But I did. Oh yes, you should definitely. You should definitely talk about your book. Yeah. Um, your first book's called Call Me Holly. Call Me Holly. My, my years, years on, on the pole. pole. Yeah, and it's uh, essentially a book of memoirs of stories um, that I uh, of stories that I experienced in from the beginning of becoming a stripper to uh, things that happened. Mm-hmm. Some lighthearted and funny, some a little more serious, um, and kind of, you know, ends with where, how that's affected my life. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's all really positive, but yeah, how yeah. it's made me the empowered woman I am today. Yeah. I think it's great when we can talk about um, sex work and the peripherals around sex work. Yeah. Um, are you comfortable talking more about that? And sure. Destigmatization? Yeah, well, the, I mean, that's that kind of goes with the whole, itself, like, but... yeah, pointing with the left and right. jerking off with the right. That's basically a lot of the experiences that so many people think that, or a lot of people, whether they were clients or just loved ones, everyone seemed to assume that I didn't want to be there or that I was somehow forced to be there or that mm-hmm. it was going to affect my self-esteem in a negative way, that it was exploitation, all of these things, people concerned for me. Mm-hmm. You know, or like even clients would be like, you know, you, you're so smart. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be working here. And I would be like, I want to be here. Um, also that's a hundred bucks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, I, the whole time I was like, no, this is my choice. I want to be here. And I actually really enjoyed, obviously like with any job, there were some crappy days, but overall I loved being a dancer. I found it incredibly empowering. Mm-hmm. Um, I, worked really hard to take care of myself and I couldn't help but take care of myself because it's such a workout. But, um, (laughs) seriously, I have, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have a fairly open-minded doctor and he even kind Mm -hmm. of had, had commented because I had certain bruises on my legs that you get from pole dancing. And he would be like, they're organized bruises, but I don't recognize the sport. <laughs> and I was like, this is actually pole dancing. And I told him I was a stripper and I was ready for this, for him to give me this whole like slut shaming lecture. But he was like, well, you're really healthy. So keep it up. <laughs> at least you're doing exercise. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So and not even an at least, but hey, you're but getting like, exercise. Yeah. Hey, yeah. you're getting some exercise. And yeah. Yeah. I actually really enjoyed it. And it. Uh, it also taught me a lot about, yeah, different, I, I want to say women, cause I mostly worked with women. The male stripper world is like a totally different world, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just learned a lot about women and how different they all were and they all came from different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. You know, there was never like one narrative, you know, you might meet like one or two dancers that like fit the stereotype mm-hmm. as with any kind of stereotype. There might be like one or two, but mm-hmm. 
that's their own story. Yeah. And everyone was really different. Yeah, and there um, is there is also a big difference between like survival sex work. Yeah, there was definitely a I want to say a feeling of like com- camaraderie or community. Like all the dancers were really good at supporting each other. That's great. Um, there's one of my favorite stories is in there. I'll give a little sneak peek. Was about um, I had forgotten that I had I was wearing a tampon, and yeah, usually a dancer would like tuck in the string, um, and I had forgotten to because I was like running late for my show, and I went on stage, and of course there's like black lights, so I had like this glowing white string that I didn't know until someone in the front row like kind of tried to whisper it subtly to me, and I realized like everyone knew they could see my tampon, and right. there was nothing I could do except finish my show, and it was, I was, it was so humiliating, I was so embarrassed, and I go back to the dance room, I'm and... I'm so sorry to hear that. I don't, I don't think, I mean, for what it's worth and it doesn't mean anything but i it doesn't have to be humiliating i i know yeah but i can respect that that was your experience that was my experience i was so embarrassed and then i went back to the dance room and i told everyone and i was super upset and one of the dancers said if it makes you feel better like i'll wear my tampon and leave a string out and like all the dancers were like we'll all do it and it was yeah that's so sweet and i was like it's so i was like that's so sweet you don't have to but i just love that that's... They were all willing to do it, and like I feel like that's a really good example of like strippers and how they often can be with each other in terms of like supporting each other. Those are some gold human beings. Like it's right? really awesome to hear that kind of community and that kind of support because yeah. I can see how that can be like a super um, shaming experience just with how much society mm-hmm. stigmatizes menstruation Ugh, and, and yeah. treats it unnecessarily as this like really shameful thing when it's like it's what bodies do naturally if they have uteruses in them i mean not that naturally is like a a good word to use but what most well or what what yeah it's a normal human function it is a normal human function that does not need to be stigmatized in the bodies that do it that is the best way to say it (laughs) yeah fuck that was complicated but it was like a huge issue of course and nowadays i'm sure i'd be a lot different But yeah. But also at the time, I mean, how old were you? Yeah, that was early on in my stripping career. I was probably, yeah, definitely like early, early 20s. Yeah. And when I think about like how knowledgeable, confident and or woke I was when I was in my early 20s, I was none of those things. Right? Think of like where you were a decade ago. Oh, God. Right? I'd rather not. (laughs) But that's a good thing, though, because you can think about where you were then and how far you've come. That's a really good point. You know, I think it's okay to look back and say, wow, I was not very good at that but i've gotten better now and then think even forward i think well think of where i was a decade ago where am i going to be a decade from now i'm going to do my best not to do that either because i don't want to disappoint myself (laughs) (laughs) or get anxiety over right i'm like oh i've got a lot of changes to make if this is supposed to be an exponential curve well i mean there was uh kevin patterson's book uh love's Love's not not colorblind oh what an amazing book so good and there was something that really kind of hit me of his kind of talking about there not being a finish line Yeah. uh, when it comes to progress. And that's something I really tried to hold on to, especially as a white person being like, okay, I'm never going to be woke. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like quote unquote woke and that's okay. And it's okay for me to not know everything as long as I'm trying to constantly work on it and improve on yeah. myself and I think that goes for a lot of things when we discuss mental health and feminism yeah. and like yeah. all of those things all of those things I know that mental health isn't always going to be perfect 
Um, but I can always work on improving my mental health and keeping myself healthy. I can always try to work on um, healing from my background yeah. with racist issues and, and being raised um, in the way that I was and trying to heal from that. Also trying to be a better white person. Ally, supporter. Ally, supporter. Yeah. Um trying I also to... appreciate that you didn't like self-title as an ally because some people do just consider like um like a dude like myself might be like I'm an ally to feminists whereas like I'm like I'm just am right. an yeah intersex- I'm that's just... like saying I, I feel like that's kind of you kind of get like given the title of ally by by someone yes. else usually yeah although I... I don't feel the funny thing about that is I don't think any one person feels like it's acceptable for them to like bestow a title on someone else so mm. it inevitably <laughs> ends up happening you just have like a lot of friends that are like yeah this person is like really like awesome and yeah. supportive I'm not gonna go I'm not gonna like when my next workshop I'm not gonna right. be like so Victor Says. said I was an ally <laughs> so I can call myself an ally now. yes no and if you have a problem with that you can take it up with him <laughs> oh no <laughs> no no that's not okay um yeah i do struggle with with that for the, the reasons you just mentioned yeah. um or yeah like someone calling themselves woke yeah i kind of have a hard time with too and it's like because there, you there is no finish line right i think there is language to talk about the work you're doing though like you can yeah. you can talk about being staunchly anti-racist and mentioning that you you make a really sincere effort to combat the racism that's still alive in you today and that like yeah like i think that a lot of people still have some i think it's good to have those conversations um but i've also learned that actions speak louder than words Definitely. and that's why that's one of the major reasons I finally completely dissociated from my father because yeah. I was like, I can't just talk the talk. I actually have to say to somebody that is an overt racist or a white supremacist or anything to call that out mm-hmm. and say, I don't want to be associated with that because I'm not, I don't want to encourage that behavior um, or to call out something when someone maybe makes an inappropriate comment mm-hmm. or uses really problematic terminology and just being like, Hey, whether it's a gender or race thing, I've tried to be like in a non-combative way to say, you know what? I don't think that's actually uh, the most appropriate word for that. Mm-hmm. And this is why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've, I can relate to that in mm-hmm. just trying to like call out other guy friends um, when they say things that have like when they tell misogynistic jokes or they mm-hmm. yeah. say something devaluing. It's yeah, that's. It's something Such, I've been... I feel like this is like completing the circle of where we began with the conversation. Right. When I talked about having, uh, being a kid and telling this racist joke. Right. And being taught, well, no, there's somebody indigenous here, so you can't right. tell the joke when they're around. Yeah. Which the message they were giving me was essentially it's okay to tell those jokes only... In some circumstances. In some circumstances, and it's not. So those are the best opportunities to speak up is when you are in those groups. If you are a cis man and you're in a group of with a group of men and mm-hmm. there's misogynistic comments happening, it's really important and speaks volumes when you can be the one to say, you know what, that's not okay. Um, this is why. And amongst groups of, of white folks in my, in my experience, as I'm white, to say, you know what, that's actually really inappropriate. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. if, if somebody of that color is not here. It's not appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's still making, yeah, exactly. Making the same sorts of comments about like, you know, that, that joke is super demeaning to women. Like yeah. it's not really, like I don't really care yeah. to be around that kind of yeah. stuff. It's not really respectful. Yeah. I'm just not super interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. Like the, the, 
Zac Efron in this, he was at the fraternity and they were all like, once they were alone at one point and they were talking about hoes and he was like, Zac Efron's like, it's not actually, you can't say hoes anymore. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of awesome. But he just kind of said that in front of all the guys when none of the girls were around. You can't call them hoes anymore. Is this from a movie? Or yeah, like... it was. I think okay. it was like the one of the Bad Neighbors movies or something. Because the you. first one, it was like this fraternity all about, you know, trying sure. to have sex with women. And then in the second one, as so... they're growing up and he had kind of pointed out when they were alone, he's like, hey, you can't say that anymore. Right. Now we are adults. I've, I've learned that it's not okay. Right. Yeah. And it's not really okay for people to say to teenagers either. But it's funny how time passes and, like, standards change. Yeah. Like, the kinds of homophobia I was exposed to as a kid, I would like to believe are no longer acceptable in high schools today. But I'm sure I think that's also dependent on where? location yeah. as well. I know that um, I'm really lucky to live where I do uh, in Vancouver. Um, my kid, I have a five-year-old is, who's in um, kindergarten. And mm-hmm. every morning... Excuse me. Every morning over the like morning announcements mm-hmm. and at every event that they do, they give land acknowledgements. That's great. Yeah. I was really happy to to hear that. And, and they um, have a lot of like indigenous guests that they pay and, and artists and stuff. So I like and of course, that's not everywhere. So I think it just depends on your location. Mm-hmm. But hopefully... Hopefully things kind of get better bit by bit. I was talking to Kyle, who, um, you know this Kyle. Okay. Um, Kyle um, from, I have to be really cautious what I say, (laughs) but you would know this Kyle. um, You know what? I can just write write it down. What time this is. Yes. I know the Kyle. Yes. That Kyle. (laughs) Um, Who is an educator. Oh, which, right, yeah, which, yeah. which I didn't, which I did wasn't super, which I didn't know about either, who was talking about representing Indigenous content in new curricula. So the, the new curriculum that he's working with is one of learning outcomes, not one of content units. So, so long as the content he's sharing teaches that learning outcome, he can share whatever content hmm. serves that purpose, so long as he has permission to do so. So he's been trying to incorporate more queer, more POC, and more Indigenous content in his work. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it is a lot more work for him to go and find all these sources and to get permission to use them and and to cite them and credit them when he's teaching with them. But just the fact that this is even an option for government educators mm-hmm. in BC, just the fact that like this is even an option for for him to go to Indigenous friendship centers and actually like talk to folks and try and get materials um to be used with permission and consent wow Um, it's 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 a step hopefully in the right direction like i it may not there it may come to light later that there are problematic things around how that's being executed right however it's better than what we were doing before in my opinion Mm -hmm. as a white settler descended person i mean not actually white but it's so interesting when you start talking about Indigenous folks, like being a POC living on Indigenous land mm. is still like a settler descended identity. Yeah. So sometimes I'll like erroneously say white to mean like white as different from Indigenous. Right. But I really shouldn't say white because settler <laughs> is really... probably a settler is yeah. definitely better. But it's it's weird when I'm born here. I feel awkward with the language, but it's not incorrect. That is how the jargon gets used is that mm-hmm. settler describes anyone who's not Indigenous. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I've been saying settler descended 
like yeah. to distinguish myself from like a first generation immigrant mm-hmm. um, because being a POC, I think like I do get asked that sometimes by white folks. So it's like a balancing of different kinds of like oppressive identities <laughs> and being like, wow. Yeah. It's, it's complicated is what it comes down yeah. to. And obviously I would never want to say anything oppressive or use language in a way that it's harmful mm-hmm. um, for any indigenous folks who may have somehow made it this far through my podcast. Um, which, which I say in a sort of like, um, like self-conscious way that it probably, it probably is going to be informed by the fact that I had a colonial education. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like when I went through school, I didn't get the same sort of socialization or education Mm -hmm. that most indigenous folks probably got. And I certainly didn't get any kind of woke education. No. Like any kind of, of sensitivity or consideration I have is from like, like diligent self-work and you know like being really cautious to self-censor and and do the education which is a privilege of class like having the time and effort to to heal even from say white supremacy like a lot of that comes from like oh i have the breathing room and the money to like be away from my parents and have the space Mm -hmm. to become my own person and like there are definitely folks that struggle really hard to get that time and space where they're not working all the time. Yeah, I think being in certain communities and like, you know, certain marginalized groups like the queer community um, also makes a difference. If I was only yeah. Yeah. socializing with my family, my white family, and not being a, p- a part of other communities or groups, I certainly wouldn't have that awareness as much as I do now. Because, right. you know, um, I think you grew you went to public school as a kid yeah you know and i did too and i i hope i think it's changed i'm starting to learn more as i watch my kid go through school and i'm really interested as to what they're learning but i know i learned you know that thanksgiving was yeah, right you know a nice happy dinner that they all had because everyone got along i like right? the idea of celebrating indigenous um like just celebrating indigenous friendship on that day of some yeah. kind or maybe on like a different day in the season. I just like doing something that doesn't like glorify colonization. Yeah. Yeah, We don't do Thanksgiving at home any anymore. It's, I mean, and, and I mean, I haven't honestly, like I'm, I'm looking at this as a fairly new issue because in my family wasn't religious Mm. and somehow Thanksgiving is associated with Christianity in my family, probably because part of my family is very religious. Yeah. So for us, it was more like Turkey day. Right. It was yeah. like, this is a day to be together as a family and eat a turkey. And that was pretty much the end of the significance. Yeah. It didn't have any colonial significance. I'm, I'm curious to learn more about a Memorial Day for mm. all of the, for, for whatever is most relevant, I think. Because it's one thing to be like, to have a memorial for... I'm I'm definitely going to say some problematic shit, so I'm just trying to be like really cautious now right, that we've talked yeah. about self censorship to not say anything super harmful. So I guess I'll just stop talking and just say that like <laughs> that works. I, That's I an option for that sure. I don't know a lot about Thanksgiving. Yeah. That I I do know that it glorifies essentially genocide. Yeah, and like Canada Day, and yeah, I have issues around that, and that's something that is fairly recent for me as well. Or mm-hmm. yeah, I know Christopher Columbus Day is an issue, and I'm happy to see Definitely. that people are making it more of like a, an ing- indigenous awareness yeah. kind of uh yeah. day so and that's that's fairly new for me and like we said and we're I'm trying super... to do better and trying to go you know what why do we what does memorial day mean yeah. really and not just what we're taught right. in the school textbooks that right. um are probably not that accurate um 
And I think it's worth remembering that war is a terrible thing. Yes. And I think if there's one thing that Memorial Day teaches us, it's like, wow, that's a big plaque with a lot of names on it. Yeah. Like a lot of fucking people yeah. died in the last two world wars. Um, not to mention any wars we've been involved in since, but predominantly those two wars have mm-hmm. killed, I think, mm-hmm. a large proportion. So when, when I see that memorialized, I'm always like, yeah, this is a really good anti-war memorial because yes. we need to remember that if we get into some kind of uh, really nasty conversations with powers that are willing to invade our country, mm-hmm. there may be one I'm thinking of in specific, we should be mindful that that may cause a lot of death. Mm-hmm. So I think it can be useful to remember war for the sake of avoiding it rather than glorifying yeah. it. Again, with history, it's supposed to be about what should be about learning from our mistakes yeah. or just learning from things that have happened, like certain wars. How did that happen? How did that start? How can we prevent that in the future? Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's kind of a no-brainer <laughs> that that's what we should be doing with history is trying to learn from learn from it and try to do better. I think there's a lot of privilege that both of us have just in being in a country where the government doesn't seem heavily invested in propagandizing or editorializing our history. Yeah. And I'm sure they do in the sense that we have Canada Day and the sense that we have Thanksgiving, right? Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm like rolling my super hard. I was just right. thinking of, of Trudeau and his like... <laughs> Recent scandals. R- yeah, like yeah. speech about reconciliation. Oh, goodness. Or but, like, even, not actually doing yes, the, the things, actions. Like, especially that, with the pipeline that's ugh. just going right over Unisotan yeah. territory. Yeah. And it's just like, how can you say one thing and do the exact opposite? Yeah. Like, I was so excited to see something that was going to be, even for just, like, you know, one term to be different. He was so adamant, too, about pipelines and getting yep. clean water on reservations. And Yeah. I, he also said that this election would be the last first-past-the-post-election Canada. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, like, I... I very rarely, I, I, so in my local riding, we almost always go conservative, almost always. In fact, mm. even in the last election with, um, with Trudeau, I believe we went conservative. Oh, really? Um, I'd have to look it up, but I've been voting in this riding a long time and it's, it's typically a conservative riding. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll usually vote for the Green Party and I do that. Yeah. Primarily because it draws attention to the problem with yeah. first past the post. When you have 800,000 voters out of a population of like 34 million and they get zero seats and 200,000 voters in Saskatchewan get eight seats, that says a lot about geography and how that impacts our power to affect our, our country. Yeah. Um, and ironically, it's less of an issue than the U.S. has with the centralization at the electoral college level, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. some people still defend and I won't get into, but I just wanted to, to mention like for those yeah. American friends that are listening and going, that sounds terrible. It's like, trust me, it's, it's worse when you don't <laughs> even have a third party. Yeah. Um, whereas here we have a fourth party and like our third party is somewhat competitive, maybe not necessarily at the federal level, but certainly yeah. at the at Positives the and negatives level. for sure. I definitely yeah. have mixed feelings about that. It's just the first past the post system tends to move towards a two party system mm-hmm. because inherently that's, that's what ends up happening. Like yeah. voting for the party you actually want. If you have any chance of a part of, of competition in your writing inherently harms the political view closest to yours. Yeah. So there's never a motivation mm-hmm. to really vote for a third party unless the race in your writing is between a third party yeah. and they're not even considering one of the two big mm-hmm. parties, which is the case in Canada, which is why I think we've managed to survive without going to a two party system. But the fact is, when you, and I think in the in the most recent election, there was a million, more than a million votes for Green, 
which when you think about it is a substantial percentage of Canadian population. Yeah. And we got one riding out of like 300 and something. So, or possibly more. It's a step. I'm, I'm finding like a lot of my, (laughs) yeah, you can definitely look it up on your phone if you want. A lot of my, a lot of my numbers are from like a really long time ago because I looked them up when I either first started voting, which was like almost 15 years ago now. Um, So it would be good for me to fact check some of this stuff and give you accurate info. I can tell you that the current, oh, as of uh, 2017, the population of Canada is 36.7 million. That's pretty significant. Do you want to look up um, the number of members of parliament in Canada right now? Sure. I've got a list here. Oh, here we go. <clears throat> um, yeah, 180 Liberal, 97 Conservative, 41 NDP, uh, 10 for Bloc Québécois, 4 Independent, 1 Green, 1 Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, and 1 People's Party. Um, 91 Women, 244 Men. Right, so there's 318 seats. So what would one seat be? One seat would be 3.1% of the population. How many votes? Because I'm just curious. Am I bitching about a thing that's a non-issue? Um, I want to see how many votes. When was the last election would be another question. Because we have a 2019 <laughs> election coming up. I think there was a 2014 election. 20. Yeah, that sounds about right. I feel like it was... I bet I could Google the 42nd Canadian election and find this information. Yeah. It's it's so interesting to me. Because we talk now, we're just talking politics now. Right. Um, in the States, that it's like two years away and they're campaigning. It was the 2015 Canadian federal election. Hmm. And in terms of the popular vote. Like, they campaigned for so long. Yeah, Elizabeth May got... 3.91% of the vote and got one seat, which represents 3.1%. Um, so there was a slight scaling there. And the Bloc Québécois got 6.04% of the vote and got 12.5% of the seats. That's crazy. Yeah, you know the percentages are not... I don't have percentages. I just have some numbers here. They like, aren't in. They aren't insanely skewed, but there are some cases where they are quite skewed, and I think what I would like to see is more proportional representation. Yes, yeah. It even has it um, kind of based uh, some of the numbers based on different provinces. Mm-hmm. Like by far, Ontario has the most at 121, mm-hmm. and Quebec at 77. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how all the territories get one province, and yet somehow. PEI gets four four ridings. Sorry, all the territories get one seat is what I mean to say. Yeah, one member yeah. of parliament. And PEI gets four. I'd be super curious to look at populations. I might totally. just cut all this out. <laughs> I know, right? Um, but it's it's neat to actually fact check and like... BC um, is at 41. So like that's a big gap from like 121 and 77 to the next highest is BC at 41. Right. And a lot of them only have one 
It's ridiculous, Sam. Anyways. Having said that, there is also a difference in population. So I yes. want to be like Yeah, Ontario mindful. and Quebec, very big population. Yukon, not as much. Yeah. So I'm going to just check what the difference is between PEI, which has a population of 143,000, and the Northwest Territories, which has a population of 44,000. Huh. So yeah. So it's actually not that horrifically scaled. Interesting. Well, good to know. <laughs> it's always good to fact check. Yeah. So TLDR, first past the post, does skew results sometimes by as much as twice the voting power um, that is appropriate for the votes that you got, inherently leading to disadvantaging some parties and advantaging others based on where you live. But having said that, um, Clearly, it doesn't seem to be an issue that Canadians care about very much because we've had three referenda in, in BC to go to like any kind of mixed member proportional or single transferable vote, and it's never happened. Um, what do I want to talk about? Yeah, any other things you wanted to discuss? We can always discuss them oh, we again. Oh, we never talked time, about... But... Um, we never talked about... the suspense um we never talked about your second book oh yeah this one actually i've just as of also, yesterday we can I also talk about sex positivity and like that's oh yeah for sure stuff. we can just roll this you into... know you can just talk to me about anything um yeah i've got my next book my second book um is coming out march 21st but i've just started yesterday i just started pre-orders and some like certain deals for pre-orders um like you know you get two dollars off the book plus a free sticker and like five dollars off any other book or t-shirt that i sell um mm -hmm. just to kind of get the awareness going and i know i've got a lot of like loved ones that have been like when is it coming out when is it coming out as if it's taken me a long time which it hasn't <laughs> um in terms of like i've been so project-based the last like few years i've just been working 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 um while i can because uh i mostly stay at home with my kids so I'm, i've been trying to get that work done while i can uh before anyways um so this book is called polyglamorous <laughs> uh i love puns a queer mom's misadventures and lessons in non-monogamy and i really wanted that kind of secondary title there um to kind of explain that this is essentially a book that has some similarities to the Call Me Holly book in that it has a lot of my own personal stories that I have shared in my kind of adventure of exploring non-monogamy and my experiences, but also alongside a little bit of kind of how to, for those maybe that are curious or just want to learn more. So I've, I've essentially tried to tie some of my personal stories with some of the lessons that I've learned because, you know, when I... I didn't know that was an option for a long time. And I know a lot of other um, non-monogamous folks can say the same thing that I'd always kind of felt that I wanted more than one person or I'd been in um, places where I was in like a love triangle, you know, the, the very common storyline of I love both of these people. There's something wrong. You know, which one do I pick? Um which later I learned that you can actually have both um, kind of scenario. And I, I'm definitely that person in the movie theater that's like, you can have both. And my, <laughs> mono, my monogamous friends kind of just pat me on the head. Um, 
It ruins so many movies because, <laughs> like, yeah. so many movies are predicated on, like, oh, but you know that that feeling when you just really, you know, you have two amazing options and mm-hmm. they're both wonderful human beings? Oh, no, what do you do? Life catastrophe. And I'm like, this <sighs> does not seem like a compelling story for me. Right. And in so many of the movies, the kind of the choices or the partners that the person's trying to decide between yeah. tend to talk about it and even sometimes acknowledge yeah, like, it would be great if we could just date, like, both people. Yeah, yeah. Or, like, I recognize that you really love her. I also really love her, and I'm going to fight for her. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm going to do the same thing. Okay. And it's like, well, they're getting along just fine. Totally. They could make this work. It's like, may the worst man lose. <laughs> but anyways, um, so coming along to finding out that there is actually a word for it and that there are other people that do this consensually and ethically mm-hmm. um, has been just kind of sharing my own experiences because I've always found it nice to sometimes go to groups just to hear other people's experiences and yeah. to say, you know what, I've done that with something similar. It's nice to know that I'm not the only one. Yeah. So it's, yeah, basically uh, misadventures and lessons in non-monogamy, I think is a good way to describe uh, what it is. And I've got my own pictures in there. That's kind of drawing. I feel and... like that's most not monogamy, though. Right. It's, it's hard to be raised in a monogamous society and not have misadventures in non-monogamy, especially when you start. Exactly. And that's one of the th- reasons I really wanted to do a book on non-monogamy, because when I first got into it, I didn't really have any resources. I didn't have a lot of people saying, here's, you know, the best way to do this. It was kind of just flying uh, into the world on my own, like just jumping from the nest mm-hmm. and and not really having a ton of resources or information to go on. And so it'd be nice. I'd like to kind of put that out there and say, you know, at least now there are people, more people writing books and more people that are offering workshops, myself included among those people that can help those that are interested but actually have resources. Yeah. And it's, it's becoming more common. You know, I'm seeing even universities, you know, 19 to 22 year olds. Yeah. Just tons of them that are have claimed to have some kind of open relationship and are interested. And it makes me so happy to see younger people have resources because I didn't. Yeah. And I definitely know that, or rather I should say, it has been my experience that when people talk about having an open relationship, it is quite different than mm. people identifying as, um, as being in. Mm, I mean, I guess technically that would qualify as some form of consensual non-monogamy. Is, yeah. I would it's it's in there. Open relationships is a form of consensual yeah. non-monogamy. Sure, there's or lots can of different be. forms. Yeah, <laughs> or can be. Yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of uh, different types. Right. Lined it's, out in there of different options that just aren't monogamy essentially. It's it's really interesting because it's still social monogamy. You yeah. are in and you are in one relationship. <laughs> you are not in multiple relationships. You are in one relationship that is open. What is it open to? Probably sex, which puts you in the swinger area. Mm-hmm. Which to mm-hmm. me, some people who are non-monogamous often consider swingers non-monogamous, but I don't think that's fair. Most swingers identify as monogamous, and if someone identifies a certain way, I think you have to respect that. Yeah, I think if you're a swinger, you are sexually non-monogamous. Yeah, that's true. Right. But I think, I think when... there's a difference between emotional monogamy and physical monogamy. Yeah, and in this case, I'm making the distinction between social monogamy. Yes. Yeah. So not even like whether or not you love someone, which would be mm-hmm. more polyamory. Yeah. Um, but uh, whether or not you're you're pooling your finances, whether or not you're living together, mm-hmm. those types of activities are typically described as socially monogamous. Yeah. 
um, as compared to sexual monogamy, which I think is really interesting because the notion of love doesn't even doesn't even factor in when you look at it from um, like from my understanding from a sociological perspective. Yeah. Not that I have any training in that. Yeah. So it's it's neat that like swingers would be socially monogamous, yes, but sexually non-monogamous, and more to the point, monoamorous. <laughs> right. Monoamorous. That's a good word. Yeah, they love one person and one person only. Yeah. And that's that's typical of the people I have met who are swingers and how right. they describe their lifestyle. Yeah. Not to be confused with people who are lifestyle swingers. Yeah. Because lifestyle folks often want to distance themselves from the label swingers because it's associated with different stuff. Yeah. I, I've seen some that love the word and some that don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's definitely like, I feel like lifestyle is more like, um, I don't know swinger chic it's like the new it's like the new swinger term <laughs> yeah that is for like the next generation of swingers almost mm-hmm. i don't know enough about it to be perfectly honest but i know that hierarchical polyamory starts becoming a thing once you get into um lifestyle folks and perhaps it was a thing with some swingers as well um but typically that's how i've heard the distinction yeah is like lifestyle is like swinger but also starting to include some polyamory right yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I find that's a common, especially with an open relationship, that's kind of a common narrative because a lot of open relationships is kind of the, well, you can have sex with other people and you can date other people, but you're not allowed to fall in love with anyone else. Right. As if we have control over that. Right. Right. And so I think inevitably there will be some feelings at some point. Yeah. And then you can address it and then maybe they kind of decide to go along with it and step into other forms of non-monogamy or they might step back and say no we're going to be yeah, monogamous hard to make a hard to make a commitment based on future feelings you don't have yet exactly exactly i'm a huge advocate for this is how we are f- feeling presently yeah um i believe with um because i was i was married why well, i am married <laughs> i don't have to think about that uh to my co-parent like sorry honey i love you uh, well we have a really uh a relationship that looks very socially monogamous sometimes. At least I say that. I feel like we look like a straight monogamous couple. And then some of my friends are like, no, you don't. But but so you, what I'm hearing is you feel sometimes. I feel sometimes that that's the way our family looks, that we look like we have a bit of a nuclear family. Um, I live Got with you. a man. We are married. We don't have a romantic or sexual relationship. We really wanted a family together. That was kind of the basis of our relationship and, and our marriage. Yeah. And I have a beautiful family Yay! and we are from the beginning, we've been non-monogamous and yeah, like I have my own bedroom. I kind of call myself a uh, solo poly ish. I know solo poly typically people don't share finances or living situations. Mm-hmm. I do, but we also have kind of like our own space. We- I've also heard solo poly are, no, you're right. That's probably that's probably a better definition. I've certainly heard that solo poly folks are poly folks dating who are not looking for a nesting partner. Yeah. But it's usually understood that they currently don't have a nesting partner either, and mm. you seem to currently have a nesting partner. Well, it's yeah, it's it's hard to describe um, your relationship, even our relationship, yeah. because I sleep in my own bed. Right. I have my own space. That's my space. But we say how we share the same house and we yeah. raise our kids together. Um, and I don't have what I would call a primary partner. Right. 
um, or a full-time partner. I think that's a lot of what I think makes me identify as solo poly is that I don't have uh, currently a de desire or time to have a time intensive right. partner. And I don't prioritize partners based on if I am sexual with them or, you know, I don't have any kind of hierarchical. Right. Um, kind of status Same. going. So it's hard to call myself solo poly when I do have, I, I share some of my finances with my co-parent because that's, sure. we have a, a co-parenting dynamic is what we have that is really friendly. It's also um, a really excellent example of how sometimes we have like a hierarchy of obligations, but that doesn't mean we have a hierarchy of control. Yeah. Yeah. Brandon and I, that's my, my, I, I call edit? him my husbeard because okay. I'm really queer. Husbeard, he I helped me it. come out actually. Yeah, it was really Aww, sweet, but I call sweet. him my husbeard because the beard joke if some people maybe aren't familiar with the beard joke um it's a beard is a term essentially for someone who would pretend to be a partner of a gay person so that they would look straight like a lot of celebrities <laughs> yeah like celebrities might have sure. a beard if that they go to events with to make it look like they're straight so if they're like a gay femme that's closeted they might have a beard to go with them yes i see yeah so we kind of we jokingly call brandon we refer to him as my husband that's great um, cause he makes me look really straight, even though I'm not. <laughs> um, so we do get some privileges in that sense that oftentimes we do look like a straight Like couple, couple. privilege and yeah. also some head privilege too. Um, but anyways, even when we had our, like at our wedding vows, we had a very also kind of strange wedding, which was wonderful. I was at the wedding. You were at the wedding. It was great. Um, we, and I remember it upset some of my family members, what we had said to each other in our vows. We had said, we, we didn't say anything about making a promise to be together forever or to love each other forever. Our right. promise was um, to recognize the ebb and flow of our relationship and to always work on our relationship as long as it's healthy. Yeah, it's I, so good. Yeah. And I was I thought your vows were really nice. Thank you. Um, yeah. And so that's always been the way we are. We're like, OK, well, living together in this family, we don't try to think of like, well, we're going to do it forever or we're going to do it for this amount of time. It's like this is what's healthy right now. This is what's working as long as our family and our kids are healthy then right. we continue working on that. If right. it's no longer healthy, then we address that and change something. Mm -hmm. um, but right now it's working really great to live in the same house. And obviously living in the same house means sharing some finances and yeah. making decisions about the kids together and stuff like that. And it's, it's funny trying to explain to some of the like really monogamous parents that I meet when they're like, wait, you're not like together together. How does that work? And mm -hmm. like, I, I kind of try to describe it as, well, imagine having like a step parent situation, but everybody mm -hmm. gets along really well, which <laughs> doesn't yeah. always happen. And they're like, wow, that sounds really nice. You have so many adults that are like working together. Whereas unfortunately in some situations where couples have like split up. Yeah. Where. D like divorced or separated. Yeah, or something like that. Not always. Sometimes people get along really well, but oftentimes there might be issues. And yeah. You know, when Brandon and I kind of discovered that our relationship wasn't romantic or, or sexual, at least anymore, it was like, so do we have to move apart now? Yeah. Like, it was like, do we, we really like, need to? We get along. We're like best friends. Just, just because... be in the same household, sleep with who you want to sleep with when it's appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Right. And <clears throat> I think there was a also the thinking that we really, really wanted kids together. That was like the main thing we had a lot of the same values and we talked about having a family and it's like there's this assumption that having kids and having a romantic partner must go hand in hand mm -hmm. and it was a really big lesson for me that that's n those are two different relationship dynamics having a marriage like a romantic or sexual marriage 
and being parents is totally different. Mm -hmm. And we were like, okay, well, we make really great parents together, but we don't have to have this like romantic dynamic. We can be best friends that raise these beautiful children together. And I, I think that's also becoming a bit uh, more common of an idea. At least it's starting to. Mm-hmm. I've even heard of, I think it was this show a while back, or discussing an, a dating app that was essentially like people that wanted to be parents together, but not necessarily like date each other. Yeah. Which I wouldn't jump into, but like, because obviously it's a big decision, but yeah, mm-hmm. you don't need to be have that kind of relationship with somebody that you co-parent with. Yeah, it's a very relationship anarchy approach. Yeah. Um, or anarchist approach to sort of look at all of these types of connections as separable. Yeah. That you can have like a domestic relationship with someone who's a co-parent and have totally different romantic and sexual relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the common fear you get is like, oh, I would get so jealous. I could never do that. <laughs> um, and it's always that like, no one was asking you to do it. I was letting you know that I do it. Right? Yeah. I think, where is that? I'm going to find it. Oh, you have like an actual story in your book? Um, well, it's a little comic. Oh, awesome. Um, I'm going to find it right now. It's How do you identify in consensual non-monogamy? It's funny because I mentioned like feeling solo poly, but there are times I also kind of feel like I'm in the relationship anarchy. Because mm-hmm. they're very similar, SOPO and yeah. RA. So <laughs> I, you know, I feel like I kind of just float in between them um, as important as labels can be for yeah. some people when it comes to identifying themselves. I, I, I don't, don't feel really that. feel like I'm this. So, and, and not to assign you a label, yeah. but that might be the most relationship anarchist thing you could have said. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> You're like, I'm not like one thing. I don't yeah. have like a label. That is pretty relationship anarchist. It's like the archetypal stereotype that like RA people yeah. are like, don't call me RA. I don't, labels don't, don't apply to me. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that makes me more relationship anarchist, but yeah, I don't, I feel like I kind of float between relationship anarchy and solo poly personally. Yeah. And I feel like that also evolves I'm over su- time. Like so I didn't used to always feel very solo poly, but now I feel like this is definitely something that fits my I'm, life. I'm curious how solo poly feels as different from relationship anarchy. What are the unique parts of solo poly that relationship anarchy doesn't contain for you? Um, I feel like with relationship anarchy and me feeling a little bit when I kind of feel like I'm floating more towards solo poly, it's that I don't have the time or um, emotional availability for a time intensive relationship i feel Mm. like relationship anarchy is a little bit of course open to anything sure and there's a part of me that's like well if it happens it happens but the solo poly part of me is like no i i i have a lot of work i really really love my alone time right um a lot of my focus right now is basically my kids and my career because my kids are so young and Mm. um my goal in terms of my career as an educator and as a sex and relationship coach has been a major focus because uh, I used to be a nurse. Right. And then when I had my first kid, that was when I I stopped working as a nurse. Mm -hmm. And we, Brandon and I, when I say we, Brandon and I agreed that I would be a stay-at-home parent until, at least the goal was until both of the kids were in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. 
And so I feel like that has been my time to try to work on my career because for those of you that want to be a sex educator, it is volunteer. It's so much of it is volunteer and exposure and like a lot yeah. of uh, with that kind of job. And so I, it was a, a lot of me working on that while being a stay at home parent and trying to have some kind of career where I can have a basic kind of regular income by the time both my kids were in school. And that's mm -hmm. why I've been so project based. I haven't mm -hmm. had much of a social life. So I guess that's a lot of why I would call myself solo poly because mm -hmm. much of my f current focus um, is has been on my kids because it is really hard having mm -hmm. young kids as a stay-at-home parent and also focusing on my career. It's, I've definitely had my hands full and definitely. I keep meeting people that I would love to see more of. And be in these relationships you don't have the resources to... And I just don't have it. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm, I'm so sorry. I just don't... I don't have it. I don't have the time. I can't give you that much time and energy. So I'm curious what makes you um, or directs you towards this idea that relationship anarchy has to be time-consuming in a way that solo poly doesn't. I don't think they say it has to. I would say sure. relationship anarchy is a lot more open to the possibility. Like, if, if it happens, it happens. And, 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 the, and the focus on solo poly, you feel there's less openness to? Well, I feel like solo poly, a lot of what um, solo poly people kind of experience or describe themselves as they mm -hmm. are their primary partner. Oh, interesting. Okay. I've heard that um, quite a few times where a solo poly person is like, no, I am my primary partner. Um, and I don't have... That is a great way yeah. of explaining to new polyamorous folks mm. that you're not hierarchical. Yeah. And that's that's where... <laughs> right? I am my primary partner. And that's... I'm, I'm going to yeah. start using that when people ask me, like, who my main partner is or who my primary yeah. partner is. And I'm just like, I roll. <laughs> and I'm like, this is why I don't describe myself as polyamorous anymore. Yeah. Just because you get free from a lot of the, like... Um, all the folks that say the highly stigmatizing junk, like, mm -hmm. oh, that never works, or, like, polyamory just explodes, and, yeah. like, all of these really shitty stigmatizing ideas that I've definitely gotten a lot of firsthand. Um, as soon as I said I was into relationship anarchy, people were like, oh, what's that? And I'm like, ha. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> big breath, and then you explain. Yeah, I've, exactly. I found the uh, little comic. Oh, do you want to read it? Yeah. Uh, you can take a quick look at it. It's me and some Love it. random person. Um, and this random person says, wow, I couldn't do that. I'd get jealous. And then I respond with, wait, so you've never experienced jealousy in your monogamous life? That's usually my first go-to. And then the person says, yeah, but with monogamy, it's romantic jealousy. <laughs> and my response is, doesn't romanticizing jealousy seem possessive and codependent? And then the last slot is just both of us blank staring at each other with nothing to say. Because yep. that's exactly what happens when I say that is we kind of just stare at each other. Yep. Because I don't know what else to say and they're not sure how to respond. It's, um, it's interesting. I don't always characterize jealousy as possessive or codependent. Sometimes it's just being really insecure in oneself. Yeah, but I think romanticizing it. Oh, romanticizing it. Yeah, romanticizing it definitely seems like moving in the codependent direction yes, for sure. Yeah. Yep. Where, um, and that's also portrayed in a ton of media, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where specifically a lot of the time it's quite misogynistic as well, where sure. it's like this man that's super jealous is like going to stand up for her all the time and be like, well, I just, I love you so much that I don't even want to see you with anyone else. Yeah. I'll like fight your best friend. <laughs> right. Yeah. How and it's like, that, that doesn't seem healthy or romantic at all, but we get kind of pushed that yeah. a lot. Yeah. It's, it's funny. It never really landed for me as even when I was practicing monogamy, 
like before I knew non-monogamy existed. Mm -hmm. Because the way that I like to talk about it is that I've always been non-monogamous. I've just practiced non-monogamy faithfully, I might add, for many years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some of the monogamous people I was practicing monogamy with weren't faithful with me. Right. um, Which is ironic given that like if we'd have been able to have a conversation about it, I probably would have been... Maybe not fine with it at the time, but mm. I certainly would have been willing to, like, look at things and have conversations. Yeah. There were specific cases where I, in my first relationship where I would have been absolutely fine with non-monogamy. And I got, like, the third degree about how I didn't love them anymore because I wasn't jealous. Yeah. Which ties into your um, your statement about romanticizing jealousy of how, like, isn't that going in the codependent direction? Like, what's... If someone doesn't feel jealous, can we at least not encourage jealousy? Yeah, yeah. And I remember having those feelings, too, of, like, why aren't you jealous? Does that mean you don't love me? Mm-hmm. Um, and I also kind of wanted to mention that being jealous isn't a bad thing. Yeah. Um, you know, you see sometimes people that get in the non-monogamous communities are like, oh, yeah, I never experienced jealousy. Like, they're the perfect, <laughs> like the they're perfect, the perfect poly, person. poly person or polyam person. Poly-am, and thank you. Yeah. Sorry. I'm trying to change my language a little bit. Yep. Um, and and then I think it ha- makes those that f- are experiencing jealousy like they're afraid maybe to talk about it because they don't want to look like they're a bad partner. And it's OK to experience jealousy. It is a natural feeling that we all get. And even in the comic, I'm like, oh, so you've never experienced jealousy in your monogamous life. It doesn't matter whether you're monogamous or non-monogamous. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whether it's necessarily a sexual or romantic threat. People get jealous of all kinds of things. I mentioned in my book that I uh, would often get jealous of my partner's video games. Sure. When, you know, when they would get really obsessed with this new video game and I'd be like, you love the video games more than me. Right. Or it could be a family member or work friends that they spend a lot of time with. Like there's a lot of things that you can experience jealousy over and it, um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's bad. I suppose if you romanticize it or if, you know, you don't really address it and it can get worse. So Mm -hmm. I think... Being non-monogamous forces you to face those feelings a little bit more, which, I mean, you should do if you're going to aim for success in a relationship would be acknowledging those feelings and say, even if you don't know what it is that you're feeling, be like, you know, something doesn't feel right. I, I just, I don't know why, but I'm really struggling with X, Y, Z. And your partner can say, well, yeah, let's, let's chat about it. And you can either find out the solution together or even just talking about it, acknowledging that those feelings are there can be a Mm -hmm. major step in a healthy relationship. So I just needed to say, you know, being jealous isn't, doesn't make you a bad uh, person in relationships. It doesn't make you bad at non-monogamy. Not at all. Um, And it isn't a sign um, of whether or not you're oriented in a way or or should or should not identify as what you choose to identify as. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up that piece because that is a very important piece. I think it's easy being steeped in non-monogamy and not having done a lot of non-monogamy education yet, Mm. um, by which I mean educating others, that I just like forget what the baseline of 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 non-monogamy is like for most people Mm -hmm. so i often forget to make really valuable and important contributions like that so i'm glad you're here to oh to remind me and fill those pieces in um and that's one of the reasons actually that um part of the title is about my misadventures is because i don't want to you know sit here and be like i know everything about non-monogamy and i'm the perfect 
you know, non-monogamous oh, yeah, partner. Sure. I'm going to put all my wonderful knowledge in this book for a nominal fee. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> right? I, that's not what I wanted to do with this book. It, right. A lot of it was not just bringing awareness to certain things or giving people resources. That You're not charging off them. your books either. How much How much are you selling your books to the general public for? Um, my Poly Glamorous book is $20. Okay. Um, if you pre-order or if you go to the book launch um, mm-hmm. at The Art of Loving uh, on March 21st, uh, it's $18. Plus you'd get, uh, I made little poly glamorous stickers that everyone gets a sticker. And, um, if you need to get another book or t-shirt, you get $5 off if you get, if you pre-order a book. Cool. Um, how much is your first book? My first one is 1650. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, the poly glamorous one is a little bit more expensive because that was a lot more money, time and resources. Yeah. Uh, this book actually really kicked my ass. I'm so happy that it's <laughs> that it's done, and I'm really proud of it uh, because it was a really it was a really challenging book. Uh, because, like I said, I didn't want to be try to uh, make myself out to be this person that knows everything mm-hmm. and is like, here, here is my knowledge. Um, what I wanted to do is say, you know what? I'm a human being. I make mistakes. Maybe I not just me. I can learn from these mistakes, but hopefully, other people can learn from these mistakes and that's why it's important to have resources for people that are new to this so they can have something uh to look at and say okay going back to history yes right oh someone has made these mistakes here's how um i can maybe avoid those same mistakes i think it's also a more accountable route to take like Mm. it's i think it's better if we can own that we did make mistakes and that people see all of our fallible selves. I think that's really hard to do. It's very scary to be vulnerable like that. And there's a lot of judgment and stigma and shame that can come with that. Yeah. At the same time, when people see modeling that, I like to think we're we're reducing people's ideas about shame, that we're, mm. we're minimizing that fear or discouraging others from feeling that fear and hopefully encouraging others to come forward and show their vulnerable selves. And yeah. hopefully that builds... Um, a more connected community where people that tend to see us often, which tends to be our local community, which tends to be our subculture, which tends to be mm-hmm, kink, mm-hmm. non-monogamy, or even just our friends and found family. Yeah. Um, they're the ones that are going to see us doing this. And hopefully we encourage those closest to us to also share their vulnerable selves. Mm-hmm. I like to think it's a window in um, intimately to ourselves and an invite to the people closest to us to do the same. Yeah. That's a good way of putting that. Mm-hmm. That was a really natural um, end to that talking. <laughs> yeah, point. I was actually going to say I I do have to go pretty quick here because I got to okay. go pick up my yes my youngest. Right. Okay, well that was a really natural end to the conversation. I'm really happy ending things there. So thank you so much for coming on and talking about stuff. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Anytime. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land Acknowledgement 
I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemlupste Sekwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.